Welcome to the Amber Restorative, podcast number two. Have you ever heard a believer say, but you can't prove God doesn't exist? It drives me up the wall, this line. There's just so much wrong with it. Ah, How many times do I need to? Haven't you heard of Bertrand Russell or Carl Sagan? You know, the teapot in space, the dragon in a garage? No, look it up. I can't prove a God doesn't exist. What kind of a defense is that? Can you prove Aphrodite doesn't exist? No? It's settled then. Let's believe everything that we can't disprove. Cognitive dissonance for the win. Why do you assume that I believe God doesn't exist in the first place? What if I don't? And even if I did, what's that got to do with anything? I don't state it as a fact. I don't evangelize and try to persuade other people to believe in this non-fact. I don't want the government to make policies based on something that's not evidently true, and I don't want schools to teach as fact things that aren't facts. But you, you do, and that's why we're having this conversation, don't you see? You're imposing your belief on others. On what grounds do you do this? Explain yourself. Can you demonstrate the truth of your claim? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, okay. I understand. No, really, I can see why that's convincing to you, but why should I accept that or anyone else? Uh Uh-huh. I see. Hmm. No, sorry, that's not evidence. That's called anecdote. You know, that's a really bad reason to believe in something, right? Sorry, you just have to have what? Faith! Oh, good Lord, so you admit you can't demonstrate God is real. You're going to stop sabotaging the rights of women and LGBT people and everything else that follows from your belief, yeah? No more campaigning for junk science and bogus sex education in school, right? Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. (sighs) Don't you understand? You have a burden of proof that you haven't met. You haven't shown why anyone should take you seriously. Doesn't that bother you? Like I said, a wall. This apologetic drives me a long way up it. When it comes to the question of God's existence, it's my experience that theists are generally ignorant of burden of proof, or they misunderstand what it is and when it applies, or worse, they try to shift the burden onto others in an attempt to shirk their responsibility or win an argument or because it's what they've been taught or because they misunderstand what atheists actually say and do in the name of atheism or rather what we don't say and do. Maybe theists try to shift the burden to avoid uncomfortable conclusions. God knows. The point is, theists need to be called out on their failure here. They don't hold the default position, and for them to act like they do, to proceed as if their extraordinary claims are evidently true and should be accepted by others on bad evidence, is insufferably arrogant, and ultimately, I'd argue, dangerous. Hell, the certainty of some believers is demonstrably harmful to people, progress, our human culture, our heritage... And religion in all forms, moderates included, still gets a free pass because of the misplaced respect of the faith methodology. But I digress. I don't want to hate on believers. As frustrating as disagreement can be, I have theist friends and family who are kind people and whose company I cherish and enjoy. This episode is not about the dangers of faith-based thinking. Please imagine quotation marks wrapped tightly around the word thinking here. And it's not so much about what separates good evidence from bad. Rather, I want to talk about the fact that it's preferable for individuals to fully understand why they believe in something, and more importantly, that it's mandatory to demonstrate evidence in support of assertions that are made, if they want other people to take their opinion seriously, especially if said assertions are not evidently true or evidently not true. I find atheists are generally more clued up on the topic of burden of proof, 
but there are still nuances to the topic that's not recognized or talked about enough in my view. So let me read to you my thoughts on philosophic burden of proof. I hope you find it useful. Burden of proof. My primary reason for remaining an atheist is that theists have failed, to date, to meet the burden of proof for their assertion that a god exists. Let's use Carl Sagan's Dragon in a Garage, no doubt inspired by Bertrand Russell's Teapot and an Orbit, and adapt the story to explore philosophic burden of proof and how it pertains to my atheism. There's a fire-breathing dragon in my garage, Malala informs Haina, her neighbor. I doubt that, Ayan, another neighbor, replies. It's true, Haina, you must believe me. Then show us, Ayan demands. Can we peek through the window to see it? Well, the, the dragon's invisible. A silly scenario, I grant you, but not an altogether bad analogy. I don't want to discuss legal burden of proof, which is a related but much broader topic than philosophic burden of proof, but thinking about how dragon in the context of a legal court case is actually a useful thought experiment. Step into the courtroom where our garage dragon stands accused of existing, a terrible crime, I know. Dragons are considered innocent until proven guilty, don't you know? So let's look at what such a trial might look like. The prosecution, Malala, has to prove that the dragon is guilty of existing, and the jury, Haina, has to deliver a verdict of guilty or not guilty. Now, if the prosecution fails to prove guilt, the jury ought to deliver a verdict of not guilty, which in context means that Haina ought to reject the claim that the dragon exists. That is not to say that the dragon is necessarily innocent, of course. It simply means that guilt could not be proven, and that we should proceed as if the dragon is innocent. In other words, does not exist. Note that I failed to introduce the defense, Ayan, an advantage for the prosecution, eh? I did this to emphasize that guilt does not have to be disproved. That would certainly be a bonus if it's possible, but the defense is not obliged to prove innocence. Their only obligation is to show that the prosecution did not prove guilt by pointing out inconsistencies, contradictions, fallacies, more plausible theories, etc. Why, you may ask, did I accuse the dragon of existing? Why not accuse it of not existing? Well, Malala made the claim that the dragon exists, intent on convincing Haina. At no point did Ayan make the opposite claim, and she's not required to. But if Ayan goes on to claim that the dragon does not exist in order to convince Haina, there would be a second, separate trial, where Ayan would play the prosecutor. Regardless, Malala is not let off the hook. She still has to prove guilt in her case. You may also wonder why the jury votes guilty or not guilty, instead of innocent or not innocent. In a real legal trial, only guilt is assessed, and for good reason. We value the principle of treating people as if they're innocent until they've proven guilty. The alternative will result in an unfortunate situation where a whole lot more people would be going to jail, many of them surely innocent, in truth. It's important to understand that not all claims are on equal footing. To say that a person is guilty of a federal crime is unusual, while saying that a person is innocent is not. That's because we know that few people, given the overall population, commit federal crimes. 
It's an evident truth, thank goodness. Not so with our dragon. We don't know of any dragons, let alone invisible ones. For it to be guilty of existing is not just unusual, but extraordinary. And that is why we evaluate its guilt of existence instead of innocence. That said, let's see what a trial might look like if the dragon was considered guilty of existing, as claimed by Malala, until proven innocent. The defense, Ayan in this case, has to prove that the dragon is innocent of existing, and the jury, Haina, has to deliver a verdict of innocent or not innocent. Now, if the defense fails to prove innocence, the jury ought to deliver a verdict of not innocent, which in context means that Haina ought to reject the claim that the dragon does not exist. Do you see the absurdity? Imagine a world where a person can make a claim that is not evidently true, without having to provide supporting evidence, and proceed as if the claim is true, which other people are required to accept, unless they can disprove the claim. Consider the practical implications of having to accept numerous such claims that are in direct conflict with each other, chaos. Burden of proof, then, can be described as your obligation to provide evidence in support of assertions that you make, especially if said assertions are extraordinary and you want it to be taken seriously, while accepting that others are not obliged to disprove your assertions in order to reject it. It's time to abandon dragons and take up God. I'll start with believers. Do theists make belief claims about God's existence? Yes, by definition, theists assert that a God exists, and therefore they have a burden of proof. Do theists want others to accept their claim, or something that follows from the claim? If they do not, the burden of proof only applies to the individuals themselves. And if they do, they are also obliged to demonstrate to others that the burden of proof has been met. Consider Christians and Muslims who together make up nearly 55% of the world's population. They generally venerate their religious scripture as a direct consequence of their theistic belief, going so far as to call it holy. And between the Bible and the Quran, believers are mandated to evangelize, proselytize, and fight, convert, or subjugate unbelievers. It follows then that many theists influence public sentiment, policy, and law, either directly or by proxy, using arguments that are deeply rooted in their belief in God, which affect not only the people who share their belief, but also those who do not. Their interest extends, unsurprisingly, to all areas of life, including education, family planning, medical and other scientific research, journalism, foreign policy, the environment, and human rights, particularly those of women and LGBTQIA people. It's evident, in my view, that theists usually act to promote their particular God claim, even if they're not aware of it. These believers are obliged to prove their God claim if they want to justify their actions to themselves and to others. Now, what about atheists? Do they make assertions about God's non-existence? No. Negative position atheists reject theistic claims, but they do not assert that gods do not exist, and therefore, burden of proof does not apply. And yes, positive position atheists assert that there are no gods, so they do have a burden of proof. Do positive position atheists want others to accept their claim, or something that follows from the claim? 
Like theists, if they do not, the burden of proof applies only to the individuals themselves, and if they do, they are also obliged to demonstrate it to others that the burden of proof has been met. I suspect, however, that atheists who promote the explicit belief that gods do not exist, as something to be believed by others, are the exception rather than the rule. I base my suspicion on experience and the thought that atheist arguments are primarily challenges to theistic claims, meaning that the effort of convincing other people to accept that gods do not exist, which requires the demonstration of proof, is unnecessary labor, twice over. The facts of reality, as we discover them, is all we have and need to fuel debate about how we ought to live as individuals, families, groups, communities, cultures, nations, and human beings. And as far as I can tell, there are no worthwhile arguments to be made that hinge on the truth of the claim that gods do not exist. Ask yourself, is there an argument of significance where it is said, because God does not exist, that is not a direct challenge to a theistic claim? And if instead it is said, because I reject the claim that Yahweh exists, or Allah, etc. Is the challenge any less potent? I say no, and no again. To make the former claim is simply to complicate the matter unnecessarily while tempting interlocutors to switch the burden of proof, which given an opportunity is known to happen. For these reasons, positive position atheists generally avoid promoting their belief, and they typically argue from a minimum requirement position. And that is true for me. I'm rationally convinced, and therefore believe, that gods do not exist. I became convinced as I evaluated the evidence in support of God's non-existence. I'll discuss proof or negative claims in another article. And I'm personally satisfied that the burden of proof has been met to justify my belief. But for me, there is nothing that depends on the truth of what I believe about God. I do not ever think or say this is so or this ought to be so because God does not exist. I have no reason then other than vanity to convince others that my personal belief is true and so I'm not in the business of promoting this belief. I do however want to challenge theists about their belief which affect my life and others. To recapitulate, when it comes to assertions about God, theists have a burden of proof if only for themselves, but generally for others too, and atheists usually do not have a burden of proof. And when they do, it's generally a burden that was taken on unnecessarily. You may distill that to theists make the claim they have to provide the proof, and atheists do not, but that is too broad a stroke for me. I think the nuance is important to understand and recognize. We've looked at claims about God's existence and non-existence specifically but we ought to review rejection claims too. When a God claim, any claim for that matter, is made, for which the burden of proof has not been met, the claim may be rejected. That is true, but to say the burden of proof has not been met, and therefore I reject the claim, is in itself a claim that carries a burden of proof. If you reject a claim, you should be able to back it up, and if you want others to take it seriously, you are obliged to provide evidence unless you're rejecting a claim for which no evidence was provided, in which case the claim may be dismissed without evidence also. There is a temptation for us atheists to say that theists have not provided any evidence, but that's disingenuous. It's not that they offer no evidence, 
theists can and do give the evidence that they find compelling. It's that the evidence is bad and shouldn't be considered compelling. If we want theists to accept our rejection claims, and I think we should want this, we are obliged to provide evidence that demonstrate why their given evidence is not convincing and why it should be discounted. We are the defense, after all, pointing out that the prosecution has not proved guilt. Maybe a jury member will see reason. I remain an atheist because theists have not met their burden of proof. Their evidence is not convincing, and that is what the rest of the series in this podcast is primarily going to be about. It's a demonstration of evidence to prove that my rejection of theistic claims is justified. It's mostly for myself to consolidate and explore my thoughts, because I want to believe as many true things and as few false things as possible, but I share it with you as food for thought so that it may be refuted or refined. I have two final comments regarding burden of proof. The first is that the question of God is undoubtedly an important one, and for this reason I must encourage everyone, theists included, to proactively look for and evaluate the evidence in support of at least the major gods that have survived history, even though no one is obliged to do so. The second is a response to theists who insist that God's existence is the default position, Given the unblemished track record of discovering natural explanations for phenomena that were once blamed on deities, one cannot honestly argue that God is evidently true. Add to that the common plea to resort to faith, and the game really is up. It is an untenable position. To say that God exists is an extraordinary claim, which, to quote Christopher Hitchens, requires extraordinary evidence. Well, there you go. That's my understanding of burden of proof. My thoughts are very much shaped by the opinions of Mr. Matt Delahunty. So uh, please visit my website, amrestorative.wordpress.com to see all references used here. And leave some feedback. Let me know what you think. As always, remember to be kind and uh, don't do anything I wouldn't do. Cheers. Cheers.